the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine like hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining room can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you're visiting, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic Felsmere, or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, old Florida cuisine at its best. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. We are back once again. I am joined tonight by uh, Colonel Charles I. Halt, who, as you uh, probably know, or some of you may know, is a retired United States Air Force colonel and the former base commander of RAF Bentwaters near uh, Woodbridge, Suffolk, in England. After serving in Vietnam, Japan, and Korea, he was assigned to Bentwaters as deputy commander. The Rendlesham Forest incident of late December 1980 occurred shortly uh, afterwards. After he retired from the U.S. Air Force in 1991, he made his first public appearances on television documentaries where he confirmed the authenticity of the Rendlesham Forest incident. His book on the subject is entitled The Halt Perspective. Colonel Halt, welcome to A Different Perspective. Well, thank you, Kevin. My pleasure. I have a short question for you because, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier when, before we uh, went on the air, we have a – this is a short segment – I just wanted to uh, confirm something with you. In June 2010, you issued a notarized affidavit in which you summarized the alleged events of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents and said, I believe the objects that uh, I saw at close quarters were extraterrestrial in origin and that security service of both the United States and the United Kingdom have attempted both then and now to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham Forest and RAF Bentwaters by the use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. Is that an accurate statement? That's a very accurate statement. And the more I learn, the more, the more I'll stand behind it. And when you say well-practiced methods of disinformation, what exactly did you refer to? Or what exactly do you mean? By that, I mean they manipulate things, they manipulate people. For instance, I didn't discover until four or five years after the incident that four or five of the young enlisted people had been brought in and, let's say, debriefed with drugs and hypnosis. The drug was probably either sodium pentothal or sodium amaral. 
Are you aware that the OSI and the CIA are authorized to use almost 500 different drugs on people, all the way up to including LSD? I knew that they did do that. I did not know that it was authorized. It's even, it's actually in a published document. So we then have, obviously, documentation that this takes place. And I think when you talked about some of these individuals, you were talking about John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, specifically? Yes, there were more than that. Yes, uh, Adrian Bestenza, uh, probably Larry Warren, although I'm not really sure about that, but that's another story. And there may be a couple others. Well, I mentioned Penniston and, and uh, Burroughs because I know both of those gentlemen. I met uh, Jim Burroughs. 20 years ago in Phoenix, Arizona, when we did a radio program together, um, an interview program, and he drove me to the radio station and drove me back to the hotel. So I've known him for a long time, and uh, we've discussed this as well. They, um, both of them, I believe, have uh, either filed suit against the government. I think uh, Burroughs actually won his suit to get his medical records released so that he could um, get his medical uh, a VA benefits is that correct? Do you are you aware of that? I'm more than aware of it. I wrote almost a three-page single-space letter to the Veterans Administration outlining the whole thing. Gordon Williams, who's a retired two-star general, who was at that time the wing commander, wrote a very pointed letter to the chief of staff of the Air Force asking for help. Barry Goldwater was involved. A whole lot of other people were involved. Actually. Uh, the doctor from the CIA that probably did the, uh, how should I say, debriefing, got involved. And I think it was less embarrassing to release the medical records. Or they didn't release the records, actually. What they did is they authorized VA treatment. So uh, these would be his personal medical records that they're, they are currently withholding then? Is that correct? According to him, and I, I have no reason not to believe him, and I, Jim has the same problem. And even Mr. Warren has that problem. Okay. Well, I, I asked I asked this specifically. I know, as I said, I know John Burroughs, and I know some of the things that he went through to get his medical records or at least get uh, authorized he treatment. Didn't, he, didn't, he, he did not get his records, I don't believe. I believe he just got authorization to get treatment. And didn't in that, in that authorization also sort of confirm some of the events that took place that he was exposed to, maybe uh, atomic radiation of some kind? Well, I can't comment on that. I don't know all the details, you know, his interface with the VA and with the various sundry different agencies. Okay, well. No, he got, he got treatment, and so Penniston did, and, and I think a couple others have. Okay, well, I, I kind of followed this tack because I knew we had just a few few minutes here, and there's other things we need to go to in depth. So we're going to have to take the quick break that I mentioned earlier, and when we come back, we'll be here with Colonel Halt talking about the Bentwaters UFO landing of December 1980. We will be back in just a moment. Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Mnemology Science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Mnemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. 
You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere, Florida. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine such as hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining rooms can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you visit, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic downtown Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, Old Florida cuisine at its best. And we are back with Colonel Charles Halt, who was involved in the Bentwaters UFO landing of December 1980. And before we went away, we got off on a little bit of a tangent, and it was something that I kind of did on purpose because uh, the segment is so short. So what I'd like to do now, Colonel, if we might, is can you tell me a little bit about the uh, what happened at Bentwaters, how this event took place, what this event was? Basically, what happened at Bentwaters was, well, something I didn't believe, something I had trouble with, something I wish I hadn't gotten involved in, I guess is the best way to put it. On the night of December 25th, the morning of the 26th, 1980, something happened. The Internet can be a goldmine for identity themes. Hey, big score? Six-pack of passports. You? A couple social security numbers. Ah, well, beats real work, right? (laughs) (laughs) It can be dangerously easy to steal your identity. LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but everyone can save up to 25% off their first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Identity theft protection starts here. Outside the base back gate at RAF. Woodbridge. Uh, the cops went up to check the gate because we locked the gate at night. We manned it during the day, but we didn't have enough manning at night. It was a shortcut between the two bases. And Amber Burroughs went up to the gate to check the integrity of the lock because the maintenance people would pick the lock or get the combination and leave it unlocked. He saw what he thought was a donned aircraft. So he went back to the, the little post there and on the phone called in and said, I think there's something in the forest. I see red, blue, and green lights, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and there appears to be some type of something, a craft. The desk sergeant said, what? And he checked with the air traffic control tower. He checked with London Heathrow. He checked with RAF Wattisham, who had air defense for that sector, and everybody said the same thing. Nothing reported done. Nothing flying in your area. It's quiet there. So he called a few other people up, including J.D. Chandler, the master was the senior NCO on duty, uh, Jim Penniston and a couple others, his other partner, Bud Steffens, came up. And they looked in the forest and they agreed there was something out there. So they came to the conclusion that somebody should go out and investigate. Penniston volunteered. Burroughs, who's a very outgoing person, said, I'll go with him. And poor Aaron Cabanasack, who was new, and you know the, the junior guy on the side was told, you go with him. So the three of them got in what they call a three-pack. In other words, it was a six, uh, four-wheel drive pickup truck. Let me let me let me interrupt right here because there's a question that springs into my mind. Uh, there are security forces at the base, correct? Security yes. personnel yes. were they armed? No, they were, but they left their arms at the, supposedly at the gate with because because they were going there's out. There's a policy into... we do not take weapons off the base. Okay. Even when we move something between the two bases, they're unloaded and they're done carefully and controlled. You know, very it's a very very sensitive issue. There it was in 1980, anyhow. Yeah, you know, that's what I was getting at. I was—I I didn't think they took their arms off the base, but I wanted to clarify that. So they're now in what you called a three-pack. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a four-wheel drive Chevy pickup or Ford pickup. I don't remember which one it was. And yeah, they're but, and they're going into what is known as Rendlesham Forest. They went down the East Gate Road. They turned right on the Forest Service Road, which goes up to the Forest Service headquarters, about a quarter or a half mile up the road. Went a couple hundred yards, turned left, got down where the lights were, and drove down a very rough service track. In other words, you had to have high center four-wheel drive to get down there. They got down and turned left on another trail and parked the vehicle because that's as close as they could get. They left Cabana Sack partway there to act as a radio relay because for some strange reasons, the radios, which were line of sight, but that's flat, weren't working right. And he was acting as a radio relay. And the two of them, Penniston and Burroughs, went forward. And they confronted something, something that they've described. Uh, they both have issues. They're both really not, well, especially Burroughs is not sure what happened. And supposedly it was a craft, a triangular, sitting on three legs, about nine or ten feet on a side, uh, with multiple lights, very dark colored, had markings on it, which were strange like hieroglyphics. And there was some kind of a, an encounter there. Uh, I'm not really sure all the details because I wasn't there. They well, told me a couple of different things. Initially, they said they cleaned up what they saw. They were afraid of telling anybody anything, and then they were debriefed, if you know what I mean. And so the things got muddled <laughs> pretty heavily. Okay, so so Burroughs and, and Penniston went out, and they saw a craft of some kind landed in the forest area. Yes, and apparently, it, according to them, it moved. It went up through the trees, and they tried to chase it. It was behind in front of them. It was behind them, according to them. And then it moved at high speed away. It, if I understand this now, um, Burroughs' initial reaction was it was some kind of an aircraft accident, possibly. Yeah, that's he, what they thought it was. That's what, that's what it appeared to be, and that's, that's very logical. And rather, and, and but they didn't call. They called to verify or attempt to verify that somebody had lost an airplane or something was down in the area. Which... They talked to they talked to the the next sergeant who controls the the law enforcement people. They talked to security control who controls the security people, and nobody had any record anywhere. In other words, London Heathrow Tire, the air traffic control tire at Bentwaters, the, the Woodbridge Tire was not active. They talked to or with a desk sergeant talked to Eastern Radar, which was RF Watersham, who had the, the radar for the area air defense, and everybody said the same thing: nothing in the area, nothing flying. We have no record of anything. Well, I, I asked this question because uh, on my blog, I, I tell people if you uh, have questions, you know, send them to me and I'll try to ask them. And one of the questions was, if it was an emer if they thought it was a downed aircraft, why didn't they alert emergency services right away? And I think you've just explained why they didn't is because they could find no evidence that it was a downed aircraft. And they went out to f find out if they could find out what was going on. They wanted to verify there was something in the forest before they you know, stuck their foot in their mouth, so to speak. Okay, so I mean that that answers the question. It makes perfect sense to me. It's it's interesting because Burroughs did not use his radio. He went to the telephone in the the little uh, guard shack there and called on the phone because he was they're sensitive to you know things like that. So he was making sure of uh, the facts before he uh, alerted a bunch of other people and got got them going outside going to the the landing site. Oh, if, if it had been a donned aircraft, there'd been a response like, you can't believe. <laughs> and and I think it would have been obvious it was a downed aircraft uh, to them. So it was just, is it a downed aircraft? And they attempted to find out whether or not it was. That's correct. Okay. So they've, they've gone out there. They've seen this strange thing. They've, I guess, now returned to the base. They're very careful. Well, actually, actually, it wasn't quite that simple. They okay. were out there for a long period of time. They actually had about 35 or 40 minutes that nobody could contact them. In other words, I won't say lost time. What I'm trying to say is that nobody could contact them. And, and J.D. Chandler up at the gate did not let anybody else go forward. He was quite concerned. He was getting ready to send a rescue party or whatever, you know, a search party out to find out what happened to them when they suddenly came straggling back to the base telling a wild tale. Okay. So at at that point, are they talking about a possibility of an alien craft or, or what is there? They didn't, what know what, they didn't know what it was, and they didn't up-channel anything at that point. But um, uh, there was some kind I, – I, I'm stumbling around here because I'm trying to formulate the question properly, but they uh, – 
there was some discussion about something strange going on in the woods the next day. I mean, they they were discussing uh, it the next day, or the next day. Uh, actually, Peniston went home. He lived in Ipswich, which was the nearest big town. He didn't live on the base. His landlord, the apartment he lived in, was a plaster of all things. So he got plaster of Paris and went out because he knew nobody would believe him. And there were indentations in the ground, three equally spaced, identical indentations. He took plaster casts, one of which I have. And there's a long story there we don't have time to go into. Uh, Mike Verano, who was the operations officer for the security police squadron, went out there with Ray Gullius and one or two others later and I think John Burroughs may have gone back out. I'm not sure. And they called the British police, and the British police came out and looked and said, hmm, hens nesting or rabbits burrowing. Oh, talk about something funny. But yeah. anyhow, and everybody left, I guess. The following night, something happened in the forest. I don't know the details and didn't learn this till years later. Bonnie Tamplin, who was the on-duty senior police officer, she was a second lieutenant or first lieutenant, second lieutenant then, I think, had some kind of confrontation, and she and Master Sergeant Bobby Ball had something happen. She had a nervous breakdown and was shipped back to States very quickly. Okay, uh, this I, is this would be the night of the 26th uh, the, to the morning of the 27th? The 27th, that's correct. Okay. And I didn't learn about I didn't learn about that until many years later. She disappeared, and I, I you know, I was kind of a mentor for her because 1980, she was a female cop, which is very unusual. She was black, very talented, bright kid, and I and I really liked her. Not you know, in a way that I just kind of sponsored her a bit to keep an eye on to make sure that the guys didn't abuse her, if you know what I mean. And uh, she disappeared, and I was kind of shocked. And I asked, well, what happened? They said she had a nervous breakdown. So I accepted that. I had no reason not to until years later when I found out that she she packed up and left and she's gone out of sight. She's in Italy right now and has been for years. So, but this is, well, again, I'm, I'm, I'm lost in the way to ask the question that will make sense. But this is not really part of the Peniston boroughs and the thing that you were involved with. This is another aspect of it. It happened in the same area. In this, but, but. The the main people we've been talking about they were not involved in it. This was uh, on the on the twenty seventh. As far as I as far as I know, only her and Master Sergeant Bobby Ball, who was the on duty NCLC for the cops, were involved. Okay, and and um, but then then we have another event that takes place on the night of the twenty seventh, the morning of the twenty eighth. That's correct. Well, let's and, go back up a little bit. Okay. On the morning of the 26th, I went up by the police station to pick up the police plotters. You know what the police plotters are? Yes. I was a military okay. policeman for a while. <laughs> okay, then you understand. And yes. I would do, quite often I would go pick them up, and I went around. And I spent a lot of nights with the riding patrols, including with John Burroughs, and spent a lot of time with Peniston. I knew them both very well. And I went into the desk to pick up the blotters because I just wanted to see what was going on and just prowling the base early in the morning because that was part of my job. And the death sergeant, uh, Crash McCabe, Crash was his nickname, started laughing when I went in, and he said, uh, oh, oh, I said, what's going on? What's so funny? He said, Colonel, you're not going to believe this. Burroughs and Peniston and Cabanasack were out in the woods last night, all night chasing UFOs, and the lieutenant said, don't put anything in the blotter. So what? Okay. I, I, I laughed. This actually answers my question, because I was trying to get how you became aware of what was going on, and now... Now we know. You went to pick up the police botter, and the, the desk sergeant told you. And he, I, he said, what do I do? I said, well, you've got to put something in the blotter because it have, may have some importance at some point. You know, you document yes. everything. So I said, you can put something in there like they saw lights and went out and investigated, and you don't have to put a whole lot more than that in there. So he typed something like that up. By the way, those blotters disappeared a little later. But anyhow, so I took the blotters up to the office. That was Monday morning. And... Everybody at the senior officer, we got together every morning and had what they call a stand-up. Actually, we sat down. But anyhow, it was a short meeting of all the senior officers on the base. We went over the day's activities, the previous activities, and what was going on, etc. And everybody kind of snickered, and we laughed. You know, yeah, UFO in the forest. Ha, ha, ha. Didn't think much about it, but when I went back to the office, I suddenly realized after spending some time on the base that all the cops were looking at the sky, and they're all looking for UFOs. That, you know, rumors on a base like that just go crazy. But I kind of brushed it off a bit until what happened the following night. And, and, and that is when you became directly involved with the, with the UFO. Then. Yes, we had, we had a, a year-end 
family gathering for all the officers of the combat support group, 40-some officers and their significant others. We just and It was a covered dish dinner. We just finished dinner. And we're getting ready for dessert when Bruce England, who was the on-duty lieutenant for the police squadron, came in. Now, Bruce was not an ordinary lieutenant. Bruce had been in the Marine Corps for four years, got out, went to college, came back and went in the Air Force. So he was a little more mature, and he was a down-to-earth guy, man. He was a no-nonsense guy, if you know what I mean. Former Marine, I say former. You're never a former Marine. You're always a Marine. But anyhow. <laughs> let, let me break in. Let me break in here because we're about to get to the point where you get directly involved. We understand that Penniston and Burroughs have seen something. Um, there were two other people late the next day that saw something, and now you're set up to uh, to go out and, and see Debunk something. Debunk it. Debunk it yourself. And we're going to learn exactly how you debunked it <laughs> when we come back in just a few minutes uh, with Colonel Charles Halt, who is the senior officer involved in the Bentwaters Rendlesham Forest events of December 1980. We will return right after this. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, 
Soul Balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A Soul Balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. And we are back with Colonel Charles Halt, who now is about to be involved in the uh, in the events that take place. We um, have uh, Penniston Burroughs having seen something a couple of days before. They're out in the in the forest. They've seen some strange lights. They've reported this back. Um, there's been some discussion about it amongst the various security forces out there, kind of laughing about it. Senior officers are kind of laughing about the UFOs, and now we're at the uh, the party that uh, you were at, Colonel Halt, and uh, you're about to learn that the, the light's back. Is that correct? That's correct. And what did he you told me? Th- there was something back. There was something back in the forest, and of course, I had. Uh, I come on, I don't believe this. And so you are going to go out and investigate it yourself and debunk this thing once and for all. Well, I was in a, I had a suit on. So I said to the chief of police, I said, I want one of your senior NCOs to go with me. He said, Bobby Ball's on duty. I knew him and knew him. He was very competent. I went to the disaster preparedness officer, Sue Jones, and I said, who's on duty? I want one of your people to come with me, whoever's on standby. I want them to get their equipment. And she said, well, it's Monroe Nevels. And I knew he was a semi-professional photographer. He had a degree in photography. In fact, he even had his own dark room then. And I said, well, good. Have him meet us down at the disaster preparedness office because I want him to get an APN-27, which is a Geiger counter, to prove that there's no radiation. Bring his camera so he can take pictures to show there's nothing there. So I went home and changed clothes, and Bruce England came by with Bobby Ball and Airman Bistenza and... Uh, oh, we went and got Neville's, and we went out into the forest. We don't have time to go through all the minute details, but <laughs> they took me out. They took me out to the site, and we find these three indentations, equidistant apart. We get radiation, which is about nine times higher, <clears throat> excuse me, than background radiation. The area in the center <clears throat> of the triangle formed by the three indentations is has higher readings than the indentations themselves. The pine trees, tall Corsica pines, have higher readings on the inside of the tree, in other words, facing the site, than the backside of the tree. When we look overhead, we can see an opening through the tree canopy where branches are broken and there's branches on the ground. While we're there trying to figure out things, something appears. A glowing object, best way I can describe it, it's oval, but like a football, only a little larger, or an eye, has a dark center, and it appears like it's blinking, and it's dripping something the equivalent of molten metal or whatever out in the farmer's field, which is beyond us looking toward the sea. <clears throat> we watch it for several minutes. It moves about. The farmer's house, which is directly behind the object, we're, we're in line with it, <clears throat> is reflecting bright red light like it's on fire off the top and bottom row of windows. And I'm kind of concerned about the people that are in the house because this thing, I don't know what it's doing or what it is. And I'm trying to think, ball lightning, I'm trying to think of an explanation. And I get to think, oh, why am I out here? I wish I'd never come out here. <clears throat> the object <clears throat> comes toward us. It comes into the forest. It moves through the trees, traveling horizontally up and down vertically a little bit, missing the trees. In other words, it's under intelligent control. It obviously was. So we go forward trying to get close to it. It goes back out into the field and explodes into five white objects silently, just like fireworks. Wow. At that point, I'm really concerned. So we go out into the field looking for evidence of whatever was shedding or dripping off the object. We find nothing but evidence that cattle had been there. The cattle were in the barn down below. So while we're out there in the field, I think it was Neville's looked to the north and said there's three or more was it three I think it was three objects that were elliptical with bright colored lights multicolored lights on them they were moving in sync together 
And while we're watching the objects turn from elliptical to full circle, still displaying multicolored lights. So we go down across the field further to get a better view, wade through a small stream and get wet. It's cold, it's windy, it's, it's a miserable night out there, actually, but it was dry. And we notice to the south two objects, very bright objects to the south. All we could see is bright white lights. One of the objects comes overhead at high speed, stops overhead, and sends down a, the equivalent of a laser beam within 10 feet of where we're standing. And, well, I'm about to go into shock. We're thinking, is it a weapon? Is it a communication? Is it a warning? What is it? And as suddenly as it appeared, click, it disappeared. In other words, just like it was light bulb, it turned off. We're out there, and in the meantime, I'm talking to the command post trying to say, do you see anything? Call Eastern Radar. What does the air traffic control say? Everybody's telling me, no, we don't see anything. We don't. Later years, I find out, guess what? They did. But anyhow, another object to the south moves over the weapon storage area or that area, <clears throat> and I can see beams coming down. And I hear chatter on the radio that they're seeing things, and I don't know what exactly happened over there. But I do know now, talking to people that were there, that the, the tire operator, there's a 38-foot tire, I believe it's 38-foot, in the weapon storage area, I definitely saw something. They saw one or more people saw a triangular object. Some of the people on the ground saw objects. And a communications guy that was working on some, some of the system out there saw something. And there was definitely something in the area. Years later, I found out the air traffic control people at Bentwaters were afraid to say, but what they saw, something go across their scope twice at about 5,000 miles an hour, came back and they saw a glowing red object, and they saw it go into the forest near where we were. I so, didn't find this out a few years later. But you're, you're in the forest. You're there with Penniston and Burroughs, is that correct? They're with you as well? No, no, no. Penniston and Burroughs weren't. Penniston and Burroughs were out there on the first night. Now, Burroughs hitchhiked okay. out. The night I went out, Burroughs hitchhiked a ride. He was not on duty with one of the police patrols coming out into the forest. And he called me on the radio two or more times and said, I want to come forward and be with you. And I was, listen, all these people in the forest at the middle of the night in England just caused me great concern. I thought, this is a public relations disaster. And I told everybody when I got out there, you guys be quiet. Don't make any noise. Don't do anything to draw attention. We do not need the publicity from this. That's why I told Burroughs, you stay here where the light halls and where the vehicles were, and there were, I don't know, 10 or 15 cops there. And he did. He stayed there very reluctantly. When we came back to the light halls and the cops, I sent most of them back to the base, and Burroughs was bugging me half to death. I want to go back out to the site where the supposed craft had landed two nights earlier. I said, okay, and he said to Bistenza, come with me. And he and Bistenza went forward. We could see them the whole time because the Corsica Pines have their the, the canopies high. You can see right through them. He went forward to the site, he and Bistenza, and they come back and they said nothing to me about anything unusual. That doesn't mean nothing happened, but nothing unusual and we all went back to the base. I wrote the memo, and you know the rest of it. Well, I, I was going to say, when, uh, the, the memo, you uh, prepared a, a page-long document about what you had seen that night or what had transpired, transpired over the couple of days? Yeah, but I kind of cleaned it up, if you know what I mean. The idea of the memo was, because what happened? When I went back to the base, it was like four thirty-five o'clock in the morning. I went home. I took a shower, had something to eat. I was hungry. I couldn't sleep, so I went into the office, and I shared the building. The bus commander's office was on one side, and the wing commander's office was on the other side. We had a common foyer. And as I was going in, Gordon Williams drove up. So I stopped and talked to him, and he, he made a comment to me. He said, boy, that was some night you had last night, because he overheard my conversations on the command radio net. Asking for, you know, the Eastern radar to look and do this and do that. I said, yeah, boss, I, I, things happen that I don't believe. And he said, oh, yeah, I understand. I said, but I made a tape of some of it. He said, tape? Let me hear it. So he and I played the tape. I played the tape for him. He said, let me have your tape. So I gave him the tape and the tape recorder, which is a little in the, the net 
uh, linear rather, uh, micro cassette. And he said, I'm going to take it down on Wednesday. Every Wednesday, the third Air Force commander, who was the senior officer in England, had all the commanders come in for a staff meeting. He said, I'm going to play for General Baisley. I said, oh, there goes my career. So he took my tape on Wednesday and played it for General Baisley. And I worried all week. And when he came back, I was waiting at the door, to be honest with you. I said, well, what happened? He laughed. He said, I played the tape for General Baisley and the staff. And basically listened intently and said to staff, well, what do we do? And nobody responded. And the general, in his infinite wisdom, said, well, it happened off the base. It's a British affair. Case closed. And Williams threw me the tape back and said, I said, well, what do I do? Anything? He said, uh, get with Don Moreland. See what he wants to do. If he wants something, give it to him. Well, Don Moreland was in Wales for the family. Uh, it was Christmas. Then. He had his family home in Wales on Anglesey Island. So I had to wait a week or 10 days till he came back. And that's how I did the memo. And the from the... Peggy... It was typed in the office. There was no copies made, just a carbon copy, the, what they call typing manifold. Conrad took it down to Williams' office and came back, and he laughed, and he gave it back to me. He says, give it to Moreland. So I gave it to Moreland. And in fact, I, I don't even know what happened to the carbon manifold. Years later, when I went looking for a copy, I had to get it off the Internet. That sounds interesting. <laughs> but anyhow, um, that's true. So Williams or somebody in his office, he obviously knew about it. So I gave it to Moreland, and Moreland sent it off to MOD. Unbeknownst to me, he sent a copy to 3rd Air Force to his liaison officer. That's how the copy got out. We waited and we waited and waited, and nothing happened. I said, great, I'm just glad this all's going away. And it all went away for two years until some things happened. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Uh, you had a complete memory of what had it, what it transpired. Were you ever debriefed by anybody um, in, in the way that Burroughs and Penniston were, or were you sort of never, out of that loop? Never. The only debriefing I ever got was done in 1991. Or ninety-one by John Alexander. You probably know who John is. John's yes. a good personal friend of mine. But I, he wasn't then. He came in. And he said he told me who he was. He said I run the special, or the uh, what do you call it, the non-lethal weapons laboratory at Sandy and so on. But John has a personal interest, as you probably know now, in a lot of things. Yes. And I thought he was the the spook that was sent to debrief me finally. And he and I talked for a long time, and I finally realized no, he had a personal interest. It wasn't. He was not being sent officially. And he and I talked to great length, and we've become great friends through the years. I well, have that... never, ever. When I left the military, my last job, I had total inspection oversight of the entire Department of Defense, all services, all agencies. I got debriefed because I had knowledge of things that we don't want to talk about. And I said to the debriefers on retirement, can I talk about Bentwaters? And they said, Bentwaters? What's about Bentwaters? I said, well, there was a UFO incident there or whatever it was, and uh, am I free to talk about it? And they said, hmm, no problem. Interesting, because they didn't know anything about it. Well, when you said, and we need to clarify this, when you said you, the things we don't want to talk about, you're talking about military secrets as opposed to UFO sightings. Yes. yes. So you're debriefed about things that you would come in contact with as in your job, and you were debriefed, and, and those are the things you don't want to talk about. The UFO, obviously, nobody cared about. Well, when I ran the DODIG, we looked at everything from where the president goes if you know there's a problem, to child care, to military readiness, to whatever. Well, we're going to so, have to take a we're going to have to take a quick break here. Uh, because we're running out of time on this segment. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the disinformation and the chemical debriefings that some of the uh, younger uh, listed soldiers went through and uh, see if we can get a little more information about that. So when we come back, we'll follow that tact. And uh, for those of you who want more information, look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and we'll return in just a moment. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, 
and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. President of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500 plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. And we are back with Colonel Charles Holt, who is the author of The Halt Perspective. And really, if you want more information about what went on during this activity in England back in 1980, that would be the place to go for it. Because here's the guy, the senior officer on the scene for part of this event, who talked to a lot of the people who were involved. This is his book. It's called The Halt Perspective. I know it's available on Amazon uh, for those of you who are interested in looking at it. Uh, So take a look at that. When we... Uh, went away, I promised, sort of, that we would talk about at least a little bit about this, uh, the chemical debriefings. Now, you didn't undergo that yourself. 
from from what you said, but uh, Penniston and Burroughs did, and 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 many of the other uh, lower-ranking enlisted personnel were debriefed in that fashion. Is that correct? That's correct, but I didn't learn that till many years later. They were frightened to speak. You have to understand how the hierarchy works. Well, you do in the military. You understand. Yes, <laughs> yes, I know exactly how it works. So they were. They were warned not to talk about this, obviously, that it was a classified event and there would be grave consequences if they talked out of school about it. And these are the the kind of standard things. You've got 20 years in jail and uh, $20,000 fines if you reveal classified information to unauthorized personnel. So, I mean, that's part of the rules and regulations. That can be pretty persuasive as well. But you are saying that they... Um, were involved in a chemical regression, and and you're not you're not saying that this event was some kind of a psyop. It was an actual extraterrestrial event. Is that correct? It was an extraterrestrial event, but there was a lot of involvement for some very sophisticated stuff. That's all I'm going to say. And you made a tape. I think uh, we we we've heard an 18 minute tape of your impressions as you were out in the forest that night was, was that the only tape you made? Was that, or, or is there other or longer tapes or is it just a section? I've been accused. I've been accused of two things, editing that tape, which I didn't. Although I have to tell you the little recorder I had, the little linear recorder, the button for play and record is the same button. And the one time I was playing it for somebody, I pushed a button to record and there's a very short bar of music. My daughter was a piano player and a musician so there's a real short bar of music on there in one place on the original tape. Now, if it's not on the one you hear on the Internet, it's not the original one. But anyhow, so, yes, the answer so to your the, question. So you, it, it's, you've just got the one, the one tape, and that's been uh, released uh, to everybody, apparently. Well, I didn't release it, believe me. <laughs> Well, I understand. Long, if you had two hours or three hours, I could explain the whole thing to you. It's a very involved thing. There's a lot of players. There's more yes. players in this than you can count. And, and I'm trying and to keep it keep it collapsed so the the listeners who might not be completely familiar with the story can understand what's going on. And I'm losing track of some of this because it oh, is, I understand it is very, that. It's very complex, and that's why I'm saying, you know, if you want more information, a place to go is the Halt Perspective. You get a hold of that book, and that'll that'll do it. And if, and if you don't mind, I'll also mention that I think uh, uh, Nick Pope, Jim Burroughs, and um, and uh, John Penniston, or Jim Penniston, and John Burroughs uh, did a book on it, uh, the Rendlesham Forest as well, that you might want to take a look at for more information. But uh, the the one here is the Halt Perspective, and uh, take a look at that. So anyway, uh, the point is um, these younger men were all um, debriefed using chemical anal- chemical uh, regressions and that sort of thing. And or maybe some more sophisticated stuff with high frequency. There's some stuff out there that you and I don't want to talk about. Okay. They were they were worked on, let's put it that way. I knew Jim Penniston very well. We spent probably 500 hours cooped up in the command post. He was always the cop liaison for exercises. And you know what the exercises were like in Europe in 1980 during the Cold War? Man, it's a gas mask, the hood, all the rubber suits, the gloves, the whole works. Hours and hours and hours of that torment. Jim was in there and I had how many thousand hours of him. I rode with Burroughs repeatedly. I knew Burroughs very well. They were never the same after the incident. So clearly they experienced something that that had great effect on their life. Uh, Whatever happened in the forest and more importantly probably what happened afterwards in the debriefing really ruined, in my personal opinion, their life. Okay, let's let's just take a, a, a side trip here because you mentioned Larry Warren at the very beginning, and I know Warren is a guy that kind of leaked this whole story into the the public arena when he talked Actually, to. Actually, he um, did. I tried to work with Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood. Were write, wrote Clear Intent, if you're familiar y- with it. Yes, yes. They wanted to write a follow-on book. Warren c- came to them. They threw various means. I, we don't have time to talk about all that. And they were all excited. They called me, and I agreed to work with them, provided they stay with the truth. Well, they figured out Warren was a fraud, a liar, according to them. And they're right, too, by the way. And so they dropped the whole thing, and Barry and I are still friends. Larry's passed away. 
they went, Larry went on to work with Peter Robinson. We can have well, a whole when you program say, you on say, that. You, when you say Larry has passed away, you mean Larry Fawcett as opposed to Larry Warren. Larry Fawcett has passed, passed away. Okay, so Larry Warren is still around. He worked with um, Peter Robinson oh, on boy. his book. There's a story in itself. <laughs> it's the biggest fraud that's ever been worked on the UFO community. I can give you a, an hour or two of all the issues, the lies, the deceit, the photoshopping, the false documents in the book. It's just stuff. And Peter keeps coming back and attacking everybody from Nick Pope to me to Georgina Bruni to Sally Rail, who wrote a book on or was going to write a book. You name it. It's a fraud. Well, let me let me take you in a different direction you may not know of. There's a fellow named was a fellow named Russ Estes, a documentarian living in California. And for six or seven months, Laurie Warren lived with him. They were. Um, uh, he put. If he him hasn't up. figured them out. He's. If he hasn't figured them out, he's got a problem. No, no. Here's here's the part of the story that's very interesting. He's got. A, he had a tape. He made a tape of Larry Warren talking about his experiences. And Larry Warren it says on the tape when this event was going on, he was on leave in Germany. He was on a three day pass in Germany. That's a lie. He was in the dormitory drinking with friends. I have it documented from friends. <laughs> well, and and also he says. Another place in the book that he was walking back to the base with five friends and they saw the UFO and they went past the UFO site. Now, what's going on? The guy is a total fraud. There's no okay. other way to describe it. Okay, so we've, 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 we don't need to listen to what Larry Warren has to say. We're, we're back with John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, and the guys who were actually involved in this thing. And they didn't talk about this until Warren, who obviously overheard the story in the barracks, uh, mention it to Fawcett and Barry Greenwood, and they the put problem it in is the- Adrian Bastenza went back to the dormitory and he said this to me. I went back and the first person I talked to, which means Larry Warren wasn't there, was Larry, and I told him everything that happened in the forest. But the problem was he'd been had before that talked about underground facilities the size of the Sky Dome. Oh God, the story goes crazy. Okay. And the other thing we should point out, Larry Warren's whole military career was, what, about eight months? <laughs> yeah, he was thrown out with a coded discharge, unsuitable, undesirable for the convenience of the government. How about that? He was also on the chain gang, which was a, a, a group that Mel Zickler had, which I didn't approve of, which was the druggies, and uh, guess what, that were working, uh, picking up rocks by the side of the road. The OSI or somebody got involved to clean things up, gave him a flunky job in supply till they could get rid of him. They find an excuse to give him a discharge and get him out and thought it would all go away. They made a mistake. So uh, Larry Warren is not a credible source. And well, we have... wait a minute. You, need, you really need to go back and look at stuff. All the Photoshopping stuff he did, the memorabilia he sold, the Stevie Vaughan guitar he sold for $100,000 turned out to be a fraud, and on and on. Oh, this is endless. Well, I'm, I'm just – we need to move away from Larry Warren because he really shouldn't be part of the story. Uh, we need Amen. to – I agree. And, 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 and so the real point is we know based, or based on what you've said is that there were debriefings done with the, the people who were directly involved that, that included um, uh, interrogation techniques, I guess is the best way to put it, and possible – uh, drugs used to get to the bottom of the story, correct? Correct. But what disappoints me is I went, after, right after the incident occurred, I went to Chuck Matthews, who was the OSI commander and a good personal friend. I mean, and we socialized with him. I, he briefed me and the, the staff multiple times. We talked to him all the time about most things except for stuff that got really sensitive for, you know, for uh, defense interests, so to speak. And I said to him, do you have any interest in what happened in the forest? He said, none whatsoever. Well, guess what? The guys were all debriefed in his office now. He didn't do it. His staff didn't do it. And I know who did it now. And that's and that was? Uh, the cleanup guy for the CIA. Okay, I just wanted plus to get naval, the... Plus naval intelligence, because naval intelligence had responsibility for Great Britain. So there was naval intelligence involved in the debriefings in the CIA. Uh, was there Air Force OSI involved as well? I think they stayed in the background. I so have this... the name, and I have the name, and it's going to appear publicly of the CIA officer, and it was involved. That did the, the, the doctor, so to speak, 
Okay. Well, we're just really run right up against it here. So I'm going to have to th- I'll thank you for giving us uh, an hour of your time here and remind people that your book is The Halt Perspective, and it tells the story of the, the Rendlesham Forest, the Bentwaters case, in your words, correct? This yes, is- but give me one minute. It's 800 pages. It's a big book. It's not a novel. It has everything in my experience, what I've learned, and a whole lot of other stuff that other people have said and with my comments. So it's designed for somebody who has a serious interest in UFOs. It's not designed to be a novel. It's not designed to be a bestseller. There's no intent to make money. It's to get the truth out. Okay. Well, listen, Colonel Halt, let me thank you for appearing on the show. I certainly appreciate it. And we will be back next week with another episode. And with any luck at all, our guest will be Ruben, uh, uh, Ruben, who was a pal with Noah Torres and done some investigations. Ruben Uarte. I couldn't remember his last name for some reason. We will be back in 167 hours. Thank you for listening.